Now we switch gears drastically to verse 16, and we start talking about ceremonial laws. Now, when we think of ceremonies, we think of weddings and graduations. But these ceremonies are more of how you conduct yourself with other people and this sense of sexual relations and treating people. So verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and has sexual relations with her, he must surely endow her to be his wife. If her father refuses to give her to her, he must pay money for the bride price of the virgins. Now this one seems really insensitive. A lot of people think it says, if he rapes a woman, then she has to marry him. And if she refuses, the father refuses to marry him, then he has to pay money to the father. And you're like, what? But that's not what it's saying. First, the word is not exactly virgin, it's more of a daughter. And the idea here is a man and a woman who know each other, they've been with each other, and he seduces her. And he gets her to sleep with her. She cares about him, he cares about her, whatever that means. And for whatever reason, the passions are high. He promises to be with her forever, and he sleeps with her before marriage. Basically what this is, it has nothing to do with rape. has nothing to do with even just picking somebody up in a bar. It has to do with premarital sex. And it could be anything from a totally non-relational one-night stand, I found you in the bar, which is not very likely to happen in this culture, all the way up to... We've been promised to each other, I'm going to be with you, but you decided to sleep with me before we got married, and now you're thinking about backing out. And in that sense, he should marry her. Why? Because marriage in God's eyes is sex. And Paul goes through this in Corinthians, if you have sex with anybody, any way you're binding yourself to them in a marriage covenant. Now, yes, you didn't make promises and covenants with them, but... Paul's trying to make it very clear what sex does. And any psychologist will tell you that when you have sex with people, you are psychologically and emotionally binding yourself to them in a way that is totally metaphysical and uncomprehensible for us to put into words. And so for you to walk away from that person after sex is to emotionally damage them and potentially physically. And so it's basically saying, you can't just say, hey baby, I love you, I want to be with you the rest of your life. You have sex with him, you're like, well, I didn't really mean that, and walk away. That's what it's dealing with. It's not rape, it's not strangers, it's a guy who makes promises, she falls in love, he doesn't follow through the promises, and now the Bible's saying, you have to follow through with your promises. If the father says, you are a scumbag, I don't want you in my daughter's life, then you have to pay a price. Now, why did God demand that the man pay the father of the bride money to marry a woman? That sounds like he's buying her. This is what we call a dowry. Now, it sounds degrading to women, but it's not. The first thing you must understand is that a dowry is set at a cap. In most cultures, you're not allowed to pay more than 50 shekels for a girl. And that's about a year's wages. You're not allowed to go over that, which is why it's significant that um, Jacob ends up working 14 years for two brides. He paid way more than what he was supposed to. So you're not allowed to go over 50 shekels. So the father's not allowed to gouge the father and the son-in-law and just like get all the money he can out of them. But why do you do this? In our culture, 
If you had kids, or you were all kids at one time, depending on, well, depending on your generation, but today, if you were raising kids today, your kids contribute nothing to the survival of your family, okay? We live in a culture where you don't need your kids to work in your house to help pay the bills. There are exceptions to that, but most families, your kids don't work, and they probably don't start working until high school, if that, and even then, they're working at KFC is not helping to pay your bills. They're just storing that up for college or movies or whatever. Your kids contribute nothing to the survival of your family. In fact, when they leave, your family is better off survival-wise. Grocery bills go down. Clothes bills go down. Kids don't contribute. In the ancient world, kids are absolutely essential for the survival of family. Farm life is hard. Every hand is absolutely necessary. Now, we weren't that far away from that. Just probably 50, 60 years ago, a lot of Americans were used to that, where my, my grandparents grew up on farms and everybody was absolutely necessary to keep the farm going. So we're not too far away from that, but we're far enough that nobody really remembers that that much. And so here's what happens. If I'm coming up to a man and I say, I want your daughter in marriage, what I'm doing is, is that family is completely dependent upon that girl to help them survive. What am I doing? I'm taking her away from him, and I'm gaining an extra hands to me. So now I've gained two extra hands to help me survive, and he's losing two hands. So why am I paying a dowry? I'm paying a dowry because I'm recognizing that I'm not just marrying her, I'm marrying her family. And what I'm saying is, I love you enough that I get that you're losing this worker, whether male or... See, if I'm a male, then I'm probably staying with my father's land. So if I'm going off to a bride, I'm probably finding a bride and bringing her to me, and I'm working on my father's land. So my father is keeping me and gaining two extra hands which means that's why he doesn't have to be paid when he gains a daughter-in-law. But what if I'm a son-in-law, I'm taking a daughter-in-law from his land and bringing her to my land, which means I'm saying, I love you so much and your family so much that I'm not just concerned about your daughter's survival, I'm concerned about your survival. And I'm going to pay you a year's wage in order to help you readjust. That gives you a year to basically readjust and you either produce less food now because you have fewer people and fewer help, or that gives you the chance to hire somebody and start making more money, or either way. And so basically what it's my way of saying, I love your family so much that I'm going to acknowledge I'm taking an employee away from you, and I'm going to pay for that. So it really ha that has nothing to do with being a female has nothing to do with buying a female, has nothing to do with degrading her, that has everything to do with the family, period, losing help. The second reason is this. If I know I have to pay a year's wages if I sleep with her, I'm less likely to seduce her and walk away. Okay, I, I mean, the equivalent of that is if I knew I had to face the father-in-law with a shotgun after I sleep with her, I'm probably less likely to do it. That, so imagine the dowry is a shotgun. Okay, that's kind of what it is except it's more steep because a year's wages is a lot harder to get away from in a court of law than it is to run away from a shotgun. And so the reality is what it's saying is it actually protects her. 
The dowry doesn't degrade the woman and say, oh, I'm buying a woman. Actually, it ups her value tremendously because it protects her from some guy devaluing her as just a piece of meat and then walking away. What it means is I know what if I sleep with her, I have to marry her or I have to pay it. Either way, this is going to seriously adjust my life. A year's wages is hard. And so I'm less likely to just jump in the sack with her with false promises. Does that make sense? So on the surface, a dowry seems degrading to women, but it actually gives her great value and it values the family. Because once you understand the culture, then these things don't sound so barbaric and dehumanizing and and sexist anymore. But people don't take the time to research that, so it's a lot easier just to post it on Facebook and everybody's like, yeah. So that's the reason, that's the law that's going here. So verse 18, you must not allow sorceress to live. A sorceress is somebody who conjures up demons and spirits in order order to um, talk to them. It also involves drugs. Whoever has sexual relations with a beast must surely be put to death. That one seems logical to us, but that's changing in America. Okay, so the reality is that law is important. So basically you're not allowed to mix with an animal because sex is about marriage between two people in the image of God, and this isn't that. Now why are these laws here? Whoever sacrifices to a god other than Yahweh alone must be utterly destroyed. You must not wrong a foreigner or oppress him. You were foreigners in the land. So God basically says three random things. Anybody practices magic, anybody who sleeps with an animal, anybody who is an idolater must be killed. And you think, that's kind of extreme. Yeah, the second one's kind of sick, but still, killing them seems kind of extreme. Well, why? First of all, sorcery is conjuring up demons. And if you're bringing demons into your community, that is horrific. Two, Sleeping with animals in the ancient world was actually pretty common. And it usually was connected to the worship of God. So this isn't just like I went out in the field and I'm an idiot and I'm sleeping with an animal. This is I'm sleeping with an animal to get the God's blessings. In fact, the Egyptians and other people had dream books. And they would tell you what animal you slept with and it would give you this kind of a blessing. But don't sleep with these animals because you would get these kind of cursings. And if you had a dream of sleeping with an animal, then that meant these good things were going to happen to you. That's how normal it was for them. My first thought is, why are you even having that dream? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Let alone to call it good. And so the reality is animals, sleeping with animals was worship. It was a way of, you would go to church and do this kind of stuff. And so this is connected to other gods. So this isn't just some guy who's not in his right mind going out in the field. This is I'm bringing it into the community in order to bring gods in. And the same thing with idolatry. What this is, is that you're basically saying, this will take care of my life better than God will. Magic will answer my life and protect me better than God will. This animal will protect me better than God will. This idolatry will. And so God is basically saying, remember, this isn't somebody who's just doing this on their own land. This is, everything is in the community. There is no such thing as individuality. So if this is coming in, I know it seems like, oh, but this wouldn't spread very quickly through my neighborhood. Yes, it would, because everybody around them and every other nation is doing this. This is normal in the world. And whatever is normal to everybody else 
is going to be very easy to become normal to the minority group of Jews that are about the size of New Jersey. And we've seen that. We think probably a long time ago, there's no way that people would be doing the things that we've seen in Hollywood. And now what are a lot of people doing now in real life? The things that we saw in Hollywood. And it seemed really sick and twisted. And how could anybody do that in real life? And now this is being accepted. Bestiality is actually a common initiation thing in fraternities and sororities now. It's required in a lot of fraternities and sororities. And you would have thought like 10, 20 years ago, there's no way anybody would do that. And now almost everybody in fraternity and sorority is doing that. And I don't mean every single one, but a lot of them. So these are things that are starting to become normal in our culture, which you would think, I would have never had to tell anybody, don't do that 20 years ago. Now you're going to have to tell your kids that when they go off to college, because there's going to be a temptation to be part of the group. And so the saying is, this isn't individuals. You're bringing this into the group, and more and more people are going to be doing this stuff. You must not wrong a foreigner. Or oppress them, because remember, you are foreigners. Remember, if the whole point of the Abrahamic covenant is to be a blessing to the entire world, then the last thing you should be doing is wronging the world. What God is basically saying is the same love commandments that I've given you apply to the people outside the nation as well. In fact, it applies even more so to them, because that's exactly why you exist. You are to be the most holy, loving community you possibly can be, so that you can bless those who've never seen anything normal and holy and loving. And so if you end up and turn around and you only love your neighbor and then you go out and you abuse and mistreat and oppress and rip off their foreigner, then you've completely missed the point of why you exist. And yes, can that foreigner come in and corrupt your culture with their practices? Will they maybe bring your neighborhood down? Will they potentially? Yes. But that's why you exist. And the question is, do you really trust God enough that if I do the right thing, that God will protect me from the consequences? Not that the consequences will never happen to me, but he'll get me through it and he'll protect me and he'll make sure that I'm blessed. Or do you think there's no way that God can bless me if I do the right thing and these people will still hurt me and take advantage of me, so I'm not going to do it? Because what that is, is a lack of trust of God. And so God has called them. You were foreigners. You did not belong. The only reason you belong now is because I saved you. Therefore, that's exactly what you're supposed to do for the foreigners. Period. That's why you exist, for no other reason. You must not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them in any way and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will be widows, and your children will be fatherless. So basically, widows and foreigners and orphans are all put in the same category. It's basically anybody who is downtrodden, anybody who is neglected. And basically what it says is you're not allowed to take advantage of them. You're not allowed to take advantage of them. If you take advantage of people who are downtrodden, then I will make you the downtrodden. That's what God says. So this can include anything from the minority groups in our country who feel oppressed and ignored, all the way up to the foreigners that are coming in, all the way to the people and your students or your children's classrooms who are sitting at the lunchroom all by themselves, that really weird person at work that's in the cubicle next to you and you just think, oh my gosh, they're so annoying, I don't want to be anywhere around them. 
all those people, anybody who feels oppressed, outcasted, ignored, dejected, you are not to take advantage of them. And you are to take care of them. Because if you don't, then I will make you that person. Period. Then he talks about borrowing. Now, when he talks about borrowing, he says a couple things. First, you're not allowed to charge somebody interest. If you loan $50 to somebody, you're not allowed to charge them interest. If you loan $2 million to them, you're not allowed to charge them interest. Because you're giving them money, now you're making money off of their disadvantage. They need the money because they don't have the money what they need. And then you're saying, not only am I not going to really truly help you, I'm going to make a profit off of you. Because that's all interest is. So God is making it very clear that you don't loan money to people who typically need the money because they're in need and then make a profit off of them. If somebody needs money, you give it to them, period. He does allow you to accept collateral to make sure that they pay you back, but you're not allowed to take collateral that will threaten their livelihood. So like, say like John comes over to me and he's got a construction business and he wants to borrow like $10,000 from me. Well, let's say $30,000. And I say, okay, I'll give you $30,000, but I'm gonna take some collateral to make sure that you pay me back so that truck over there that you've got, that's about $30,000 brand new. I'm going to take that and keep that until you pay me back. What's the problem with that? John's a construction worker. If he doesn't have a truck... Now, John's just like some guy living in a rich mansion. One, he's probably not borrowing money from you. And two, he probably has so many other cars that he could drive that he'd be okay. But he's a construction worker. He needs that truck to make a living. And I've just hindered him from his living and survival. So this is why God's like, you're not allowed to take their grinding stone. You're not allowed to take their cloak because they'll freeze to death. You're not allowed to take anything that will threaten their survival. If everything they have is absolutely necessary for their survival, then they're so poor, then you shouldn't take anything. And if they never pay you back, then don't worry because you still have more money than they do if they have no collateral they can offer you and God will take care of you. And every time God keeps ending this with, I will take care of you. And in fact, when we get to the Second Testament, God will actually refuse to allow you to accept the money back. Or let, let me rephrase it this way. You're not allowed to demand the payment back. So basically, if John asks for $10,000 and I can give it to him, and I give him $10,000, I'm not allowed to ask for it back. Because God takes the love your neighbor so seriously that if they need it, you give it to them. Now, if they want to pay you back, they can, and you're allowed to accept it, but you're not allowed to demand it. Because the idea is if you can afford to give it to them, then one, you can afford to give it to them. And two, God will take care of you. Do you really truly believe that if you love your neighbor sacrificially, then God will take care of you? I mean, think about it. We give our time. It's not like people can pay time back to you. You give lots of hours to charities and missions and church. And it's not like the church is going to like pay you back time. Oh, here's two more years to your life for helping me out. You emotionally invest in people. People are emotionally exhausted after counseling people or dealing with family members' problems. It's not like they can emotionally give back to you. I mean, yeah, they can say thank you and take you out to eat and that can fill you up big time, but it still doesn't take really recover. So why is money any different? 
Why do we demand repayment on loans of money, yet we don't demand repayment of time and emotions and psychological well-being? And so that's what God is basically saying. Loving your neighbor with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your strength is also your resources. And so what God is ultimately is saying is this is really about helping your neighbor, not about making a profit and not about getting your money back and not about hounding them all the time. You give them a need, and if they pay you back, then that's their way of loving you. And if they don't, then you really do you trust God to take care of you. Do I trust God that he'll take care of me emotionally and psychologically and time-wise if I keep giving this up all the time? And that's what God is basically saying here. You're not, and you're not allowed, you, I'll give you, you can take collateral, but you're not allowed to do anything that threatens their livelihood because that defeats the point of a loan. And so a lot of this stuff just really makes you think about how selfish we really are when we think about all these scenarios. When your first thought is, oh my gosh, they still haven't paid me back that five bucks that I gave them for lunch. Really? That's really how you feel about your friend? They needed five bucks and you gave it back and now you're still thinking, well, I don't like, uh, they don't give him money. He never pays you back. Well, how much does he really owe you? Well, 20 bucks here and there and there and there. Really? That's what he is to you as a friend? That's what she is to you as a friend? But those are the things we kind of think about. No, they're not trustworthy. They don't pay loans back. No, that's not the way. That's not love. That reveals your heart. That reveals your heart. Verse 28, you must not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Now notice how the ruler of your people and your God are kind of put together. This should make you rethink all those comments on Facebook about presidential leaders. Well, there's a whole lot of cursing of presidential leaders that goes on. And yet God says, you're not allowed to do that. Because if you notice, the more we curse our presidential leaders, the more less, the more we are willing to degrade them as a culture. And the more we degrade them as a culture, the more our culture goes down. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. You must also do this for your oxen and your sheep. Seven days you may remain with your mothers, but give them to me on the eighth day. You will be holy people to me, and you must not eat any meat torn by animals in the fields. You must throw it to the dogs. Now, some of this stuff is pretty random that we'll talk about more when we get to Leviticus. But basically, God says, look, if you're going to love me with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, then that doesn't mean holding back. You might be able to hold back tithings and offerings of your animals and money, and nobody would ever know the difference, but I do. And this isn't about me as God saying, gotcha, I caught you. This is about me as a God who says, man, you don't really love me. And therefore, it's really hard to have a relationship with you. And so if you're thinking, oh, great, the tithe again, then that's where your heart is with God. That's like your spouse saying, oh, great, got to go out to eat with her again. And so what he's saying is holding back says, this isn't about violating a law. This is not about feeling guilty before the pastor because you didn't give your 10%. This is about what you really truly feel about God and what he, how much he really matters to you. Chapter 23, verse 1. A lot of these go right off the commandments. Notice how all these are tying back to the Ten Commandments. You must not give a false report. Do not make common cause with the wicked to be malicious witness. 
So basically, don't give false reports and don't join bad people who say bad things about people just because it makes them a profit. Don't, don't join in the gossip bandwagon. Because like, oh, look at that crowd. They're really popular and lots of people like them because of the gossip. And then you jump on with them and you go to the gossip. And now you're like really popular now. Okay, no, we don't think that way anymore in high school terms, but we still kind of think that way in a lot of ways. You must not follow the crowd or do doing evil things in a lawsuit. You must not offer a testimony that agrees with the crowd so as to pervert justice. And you must not show partiality to a poor man in a lawsuit. So it's interesting, one place God says, don't show partiality to the rich and ignore the poor. Now he says, but don't show partiality to the poor and then hate the rich, which is like the really popular thing to do now in America. You hate the rich. They're evil, bad. They probably made their money in bad ways and nobody has anything now because they're hoarding it all. So let's now favor the poor people and just act like everything is okay and they're all perfect to it. Basically, God is saying, you're all evil (laughs) and don't show partiality to anybody depending on because a lot of people can look really good if they get with the rich and they're like look at me i'm favoring the rich and i'm with them now but you can also look really good when you favor the poor oh look at them we should totally give to their company and buy from them because they help give to the poor look at bill gates all the money that he gave to hurricane katrina we should buy microsoft and that's basically you can favor the poor you can favor the rich and it's all about you looking good why do you love the poor and the rich because they're in the image of God. Not because of what it will do for you. That's all God's really saying. You love them, not because of what it will do for you. Not because you can go to everybody and say, look, I help out with orphans. That's really all orphans are to you? That's not loving. Don't follow the crowd. Look, if everybody seems like they're doing the thing, you're like, well, everybody's doing it. I mean, this one's kind of obvious. We tell our kids all the time, but then we kind of do the same thing. We think, well, if everybody's voting for them in my party or in my church or my family, then they must not be that bad of a person. Or, And we start making decisions, or I've been on church councils before, and other churches, not this one, where everybody knows they probably shouldn't make the decision, but everybody kind of starts leaning that way, and everybody's just kind of like, well, okay, it's easier to just go with everybody than try to fight this battle about whether it's biblical or not because they're gonna, we're going to be here forever and I'm tired of trying to make this decision. And, and then you just follow the crowd and you know you probably should have made that decision, but you rationalize it because I hate meetings and we're never going to get out of here. Okay? Don't follow the crowd. It doesn't look the same in high school as it does now as an adult, but we still do exactly the same thing. We've just found better ways of making it look more adult and responsible than what high school kids do. But in the end, it's the same thing. There's been many meetings I've gone to where they're acting the same way as the high school kids that I teach every day. They're just better at covering it up. If you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, you must by all means return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling under his load, you must not ignore him, but you be sure to help him with it. Now this pushes you further. This doesn't say just your neighbor who you like. Your enemy's property is wandering in your land, and it's lost. 
you're actually not only supposed to tell him about it, but you're to go out of your way and walk that animal back to your enemy and look him in the face and hand him over and say, here you go. That's love. That's love. If you see your enemy or his animal hurt and injured and they're under, you're not being like, oh, poetic justice. You're to help them. And this is where Christ comes in. Where Look, a lot of the, all the teachings of Christ are not new. We think when we get to the Second Testament, like, wow, Christ is taking it way further. No, he's not. He's just taking you back to what he said a long time ago. But we kind of just ignore that because those are boring laws. You must not turn away from justice, your poor people in their lawsuits. Keep your distance from false charges. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. You must not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and subverts the words of the righteous. Don't take money, because that blinds your decisions. You must not oppress a foreigner, since you know the life of a foreigner, for you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. There's a lot of times that God says that one, over and over and over again in a lot of the books. Now, the Sabbaths and feast. We've already talked about the Sabbath in great extension. But the other thing you need to realize is there's two other major Sabbaths that we're going to learn about. Well, technically three others. There's the weekly Sabbath that happens on the seventh day of the week. We've already talked about that in, in depth. Then there's a Sabbath that happens every seven years, the seventh year you're to obey a Sabbath. And then there's a Sabbath that happens at the end of 50 years, which is Jubilee. And then there's what seven, what's called seven high Sabbaths that happen on years of what we would call festivals or holidays. We will talk about all of those in great depth when we get to Leviticus. Okay, right now, we've already talked about the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath in depth. And now he's going to go into the seven-year Sabbath. And the seven-year Sabbath is basically every seven years you're not allowed to plant or intentionally grow any grain. That basically means you're not allowed to restock the shelves of the grocery store every seventh year. That entire year, you're not allowed to restock the grocery store shelves. So no farmer is allowed to go to the field and plant any crops. All you're allowed to do is eat what naturally grows up from the previous years. Now, what is this going to do? This is going to make you trust God. If all you have to live on is what grows naturally in that seventh year, you have to trust God. That's the same thing as saying, I will trust God that he'll take care of me on the seventh day because I'm not going to be working on the seventh day. Now he's extending it out, and this is like trust 401. Like, do you trust me for an entire year? That's huge. An agricultural community where you need that to survive, and even if you had that field, you still might not survive, then not having it all is like guaranteed death. And it's not just you, it's the entire nation at once. Now, there's two different views on this. Douglas Stewart, who is a really respected scholar, actually argues that he doesn't think this is the entire nation stopping at once. Because one of the reasons that God gives here is so that the poor will be allowed to eat from the land that grows. Like normally you're harvesting, you're taking it because you did it, but in this seventh year, it's mostly for the poor. And he gives them something to take. The problem that Douglas says is seven years is a whole lot of time to wait for food to be given to you. Now, God's going to command gleaning and Leviticus and that kind of stuff, and we'll get there. But it's like, if this is specifically for the poor to have some extra food, seven years 
is a long time for poor people to wait and it only comes every seven years. So he makes the argument that it's rotation of your fields, that a farmer can pick any time that he wants to start the rotation, but in the seventh year, he's not allowed to plant anything. And not just to give the land rest, we now know that that's wise farming to replenish the soil. But at the same time, it means that no matter where you are, there's always going to be a field that the poor can take food from and eat because it's always going to be fields somewhere resting in the seventh year. So technically, every year is a seventh year rest somewhere. Now, that makes a whole lot of sense when it comes to loving your neighbor and your poor. The problem is, when you get to Leviticus, the language really is strong about the entire nation coming to ceasing. And so the question is, and here's the other thing too, we don't know exactly how the Jews executed this because they never obeyed this command. And so it's like we've got this here where it really makes it sound like it's for the poor and a total nation ceasing does not seem beneficial to the poor. But when you get to Leviticus, it really makes it sound like it is the entire nation ceasing in order to trust God for an entire year as a community, as a nation. And we have Israel never put into practice. So we're going to like, well, they would understand it way better than we would because they were right there with Moses. But if they don't ever put into practice, then it's hard to say, well, this is how they did it. So I'm going to have to plead to hold ignorance. Either way, it's about loving God or loving your neighbor. Either way has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with trusting God and a total ceasing or I'm not going to take anything from my field that year, and all the profits literally are going to go to the poor that year in that particular field. Well, um, relating to that, I mean, could it be six years? I mean, could God be trying to to get them to, to prepare for that seventh year, like when Joseph was in Egypt and they were... Yeah, but you have to remember things don't last long like that. I mean, yeah, you can stock up and that kind of stuff, but that's not trusting God anymore. Yeah, but um, remember, it's hard to store things. Like, Joseph was able to store up grain because he was also, like, the wealthiest person in the entire world, being second in command of the Pharaoh. So your government can come in and build these latest grain silos. But if you're a farmer with eight kids in the field and you're barely, and you're wondering, are my kids going to survive this year from starvation? you barely have enough food to keep your family alive that year. You definitely don't have the money to build a silo and then store extra away in order to have that in the seventh year. So remember, like today, yes, even the poorest farmers were able to build barns and silos in American history. But back then, that's not true. Back then, that's not true. So yeah, that's a possibility, but practically, it probably would not work in the ancient world. It's also interesting to think about that at the time they're given this law that they're wandering around a desert, so they're not planting fields. Exactly. And so the, you would say, well, wouldn't Moses make sure that they did this? That's a great thing. No, because by the time they actually get into the land 40 years later and actually could start planting things, Moses is dead, and we're 14 years away from Judges, and Judges is really jacked. Now, if they had actually obeyed God, they would be in the land a year from now and Moses would be alive and maybe things would have gone a lot better and we could at least have some practice. But the problem is by the time they get in the land, they're on their own. And Joshua is a great leader, but 
Joshua's already like in his 90, 80s and 90s by the time they enter the land. So he only has about 14 years with them before he dies off and it goes to the next generation. So so the problem is, yeah, they're not even in the land yet. That's a great point to make. They're in the desert. So there's no way to even put this into practice until another 40 years from now. So right now they're the poor, depending upon God to provide for them. So these are all the laws. So basically what God did is he went through all the Ten Commandments and said, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when your neighbor fails to do it. Then you step up and you do it. This is what it means to live it out in a real life. Now, does this couple cover every scenario in life? No. But the idea that God is saying is, I give you brains. And now I've given you all these examples. You use your brain and extrapolate it. If you can't extrapolate it, it's because you're selfish and you have a bigger problem. You have a much bigger problem. And so these are the commands that he's giving. 